you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 11 and continue on to verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help as we read your word, as we hear it preached. Pray that you continue to give us insight, understanding, that you would illumine our minds, soften our hearts. Uh, Father, we pray that your word would be our life. Your word would be the wisdom from heaven that, that we seek above all things. We pray that in it we would find Jesus and that we would know him and love him and, and seek to, to live a life that's pleasing to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the three cereals all made by General Mills, the original was Kicks, and then there was Tricks. And then there was Cocoa Puffs. You know the story, right? Cocoa Puffs, the first commercial, was aired in 1962 using the cuckoo bird, Sunny. But I never realized this. Unlike Trix cereal, where the silly rabbit was constantly trying to eat the cereal that the kids had, the cuckoo bird, Sonny's always trying to avoid the cereal that the kids had because he knew that if he got anywhere near it, it would drive him crazy. Literally, he'd start jumping around the screen uh, spazzing out, losing his senses, if you will. But why? Why is the cuckoo bird always associated with some sort of foolish or crazy behavior? Well, the, the cuckoo birds that are known around here are, don't act in the same way, don't have the same uh, sounds that the European cuckoo makes. But we know the sound because we've seen cuckoo clocks, right? The only difference is a cuckoo clock does it once an hour. A European cuckoo bird does it every second, over and over and over again. So you can see why either you would think that the person having to hear it would go cuckoo, or you'd think that the cuckoo bird himself is cuckoo because he continues to speak seemingly pointless, repetitious words again and again and again. Throughout history, some Christians have been classified as a little cuckoo. One of the earliest examples was St. Nicholas the Pilgrim, who was a young homeless man who died in 1094 A.D. He apparently never stopped repeating the phrase, Kyrie eleison, 
which means Lord have mercy. He did it again and again and again, just like the cuckoo bird. And they just thought he was crazy. Of course, he apparently was well known for his good works, but for some reason or another, he was kind of out of his mind. But there were others that were like that too. Um, basically, the followers of St. Francis of Assisi were well known as being a little different from the average Joe. They were men who were willing to give all of their possessions away in order to go preach to the poor. So we, we know that they lived quite a different life than the average uh, citizen. But there was one particular man that went farther than any other of the followers of Assisi whose name was Brother Juniper. And uh, the other uh, Franciscan monks were really concerned about him because not only did he give his possessions away, but he would often give the very clothes on his back away to anyone who needed clothes. So they had to watch him very closely that he would not be walking around town naked because it happened on more than one occasion. And so again, they thought he was cuckoo. But as you know, that, that uh, the Juniper was not the first person, first believer, if you will, who ever walked around town naked. If you know your Old Testament well, you go back to Isaiah chapter 20. For three years, the prophet Isaiah walked around town naked. But his was to make a point. Prophets sometimes make points in very unusual ways. By no means was his behavior meant to be normative or followed in any way by the rest of the believers. But in fact, if you think in the New Testament times, one of Jesus' primary miracles that he uh, did was to cast demons out of, out of men, right? And in one particular occasion, if you remember, there was one who was so full of demons that he was called Legion because he just had many, many demons within him. And when he cast the demon out, he was well known for, for the first time having the right mind of a man. And for having been fully clothed and being able to sit at Jesus' feet. No, Christianity is not meant to be an insane religion, if you will. It's meant to be very rational in that sense that people would normally act according to their senses. In fact, I'd say Christianity would, for the first time, make someone really enter fully into the senses that God has given to us in order that we might walk in a way that's pleasing unto God. But nevertheless, the untrained auditor who doesn't understand the repetitious call of the cuckoo bird is in the same way not understanding uh, what it's like to be a Christian in the zeal for Jesus. To, to the unbeliever, I imagine in some cases, when they meet someone who is very zealous for Christ, instead of cuckoo, cuckoo, it sounds like Jesus, 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 over and over again. And in fact, uh, throughout history, many such Christians have been called holy fools or blessed fools because they've been well-known for constantly mentioning the name of Jesus. One such fool is, is named Anthony the Great. He was uh, the father of monasticism. And if you know his story, basically one day he decided he had had enough of the society in which he was living because it was so prevalent with sin that he decided to move away by himself into the wilderness for years. And this is sort of what started the trend toward monasticism. And people thought he was absolutely crazy, but in response he said, no, I think the world is crazy that's why I'm moving away from it. In fact, he says, there comes a time when people behave like madmen, and if they see anybody who does not behave like that, they will rebel against him and say, you're mad because he's not like them. And he's basically saying that's what it's like for all Christians. And I think maybe we wouldn't have understood his 
mentality before, but as the culture just continues to change so quickly, and they say so many stupid things now, you're thinking, they have to be crazy. There's something wrong with our society, if you will. And so the more you begin to think like a Christian and not like the rest of society, you're going to be perceived as being cuckoo. You're crazy. There's something wrong with you that you actually believe in a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and you actually believe that he's coming back to judge the world. That's something that our culture just can't understand. But this is what the Apostle Paul has been saying again and again in his epistle to the Corinthians, that the message of the cross seems like foolishness to those who are perishing, so that anyone who is actually a Christian seems like a fool. That's, that's the ongoing message throughout First and Second Corinthians, if you will. But here in our text this morning, once again, Paul's antagonists have come into the church. They've not only accused him of being a peddler of God's word, they've not only accused him of being less great than the rest of the apostles, but now they're also saying that somehow he's not in his right mind. He's lost his senses, if you will, and, and mainly because he's been persecuted so many times. What man in his right mind would continue to go into a town and preach the gospel after he's been stoned in that same town? What man in his right mind would continue to persevere in this type of ministry knowing that he has had so many uh, people who have opposed him left and right? Ultimately, the question that arises again and again in this epistle particularly is what causes Paul to get out of bed each morning to do the things that he does? What, what motivates him to continue to live this radical life and to persevere in this ministry, and even to die for the sake of the gospel. What motivates someone to do that? And in our text this morning, Paul provides two answers to that question. He says, these are the two things that motivate me to do what I do. And it comes down to a combination of fear and love. These are his two motivations. So let's take a look at the first one, fear as motivation. Uh, In verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Of course, as a rule, anytime you see the word therefore at the beginning of a sentence, you might want to ask yourself, what's it there for? So you have to go back to the previous verse that we covered last week, or two weeks ago, in verse 10, where Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Evil. So the fear of the Lord that Paul is speaking of here is this holy and reverent fear that he has, knowing that, that all of his works will be examined by Christ on the day of judgment. Again, uh, most of us think of fear as a bad thing. Paul doesn't. Uh, most of us think of fear as something that only hinders us, but Paul thinks of it as something that actually uh, spurs us on, if you will, in, in, in a way to do something good. Uh, to some extent, it makes sense uh, for every student that is here today, and especially the men that were up here just a few minutes ago, I imagine all of them had some sense of a healthy fear of an examination, of taking an exam that motivated them to study in a way that they would not have studied if they didn't have that exam, especially on the material that they didn't like as much. I imagine uh, for those who like aeronautical engineering, it would have been easier to study that subject, but, but for those who had to study English grammar, maybe not so much. But knowing that there's an examination causes you to prepare because you know that your work is going to be examined. But I want to give you a better illustration than that. 
My family and I took a flight on a budget airline recently. And I can be cheaper than the budget airline can be. Um, they only allowed me to take one personal item, so I packed two weeks' worth of clothes in one personal item. Got a plastic bag, ziplocked it, and sucked all the air out, folded it up three times, stuffed it in the bag, et cetera, et cetera. Made all my family do the same because that's how I roll. And it was no problem when we left for the trip because we left at 6 o'clock in the morning and all of the airline staff was completely asleep. They weren't paying attention to our bags whatsoever. So we got on, no problem. All of our bags were neatly packed and just as they should be. But on the way back, it's a little different, right? Because on the way back, you're not packed as neatly or as nicely. You, maybe you added a couple of extra items on the trip that you didn't have originally. They're not going to fit in the same way. And, and you sort of packed quickly because you want to get on the plane, etc. Well, on the way back, I noticed that at the front of the line, there was an employee who was stationed there just to look at your bag and to make sure that you could fit it in that model case thing, that torture chamber for luggage, you know what I'm talking about? That you had to fit it in that, and of course, I don't think any of our bags are going to fit into that. So immediately I started tossing toiletries left and right, and then I jumped on my bag three times. It went down maybe about three inches, and I finally got up to the container, and I punched that puppy down into the container. It wasn't coming out, but it got in. So I was able to take all of my important things with me without having to be fined in any way. I got on the plane, no problem whatsoever. Not an issue. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned to you the passage in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 and following, where Paul says this. He says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, at that time, I told you Paul's not talking about salvation here. He's not talking about how one gets into heaven. It has nothing to do with justification. Okay, He's only talking about the evaluation of our works. As you know, not all of our works are good. Not all of our works are going to be commended on that final day. In fact, many of our works that we think are good are not as good as we think. But if we know Jesus and we trust him fully, and even when we attempt to do our works, even if they're not stellar, it's okay because we're not basing our salvation on our works, right? Amen? We're basing our works on whose works? Our our salvation on whose works? Christ. And his is more than stellar enough to get us in. So it has nothing to do with salvation. Make sure you understand me when I say this. However, he does say that all of our works will be evaluated in this way. Think of it this way. Um, You know, using the analogy of the airplane bags. If a person has a ticket to get on the plane, he's still getting on the plane even if his luggage doesn't go with him. You got it? You got a ticket, you're getting in. The ticket's based solely upon your faith in Christ. That's it. Your luggage may not go with you, but you're going, okay? But let me put it to you this way. What if inside your bag is every personal photo you've ever taken, every work of art you've ever created, as well as your wallet and your smartphone that contains all your credit cards and all your contact numbers? Are you sure you want to go without your bag? 
If you're taking an earthly flight, obviously not. You wouldn't leave without your bag. You've got to have your bag because it's got all your important stuff, right? You wouldn't be willing to part with those things. But if you were taking a spiritual flight, I think most people often say, well, yeah, I don't need to take the bags. In fact, I hear Christians say all the time, I'd be happy just to be in heaven. And I get the sentiment, I understand it fully, knowing that anything in heaven has to be better than anything we experience on earth. I get that fully. But at the same time, do you really want to show up before the Lord merely by the skin of your teeth? Do you really want to go to heaven having to toss all of your bags out because they don't fit in heaven? Do you really want to go and, and on the day of judgment go up to the Lord and, and, and say to him, well, you gave me these talents, I, I hid them in the sand. Is that what you want to do? Do you not want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let me see your bags. Let me see what you've done. Let me commend you for all that you've done for my name's sake. And rejoice in the works that you've done. What you want your works to come with you? That's what he's saying here. You have to understand, this motivates Paul to know that there's a reward for the works that he does. Again, it has nothing to do with salvation. His salvation is solely based upon Christ's works. However, there's a great praise and commendation for all the good works that we've done. And, and he says that again and again throughout the New Testament. There's no doubt about it. The answer to that question of whether or not this is what we want to do, this is what motivates Paul. Verse 11, look at it again there. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. But notice what he says immediately afterwards. He says, but what we are is known to God, meaning our salvation is secure because we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. It has nothing to do with salvation. But yet, the quality of our works is still yet to be seen, for we are not through with our service here on earth. And so he says, out of fear, I want to continue to persuade others. I want to continue to live for the Lord and to, and to do the works that, that are pleasing to him. Additionally, Paul says to the Corinthians in, in that same verse, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. In other words, we're not charlatans, we're not peddlers of God's word, we're not hired hands that don't care about God's flock. We're servants of the Lord, and we have sacrificed time and talents, all of this, in order to persuade you of the truth of the gospel of Christ. This is something that's very important to his heart. But still, there are some who, in verse 13, are, are saying Paul's out of his mind because he's, 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 he's so devoted to the Lord. And this is the connection between the passage that, that David read earlier from 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David is dancing before the ark. I was hoping that David would actually dance as he read it so that you'd see it. But, but basically, David is so excited to bring the ark of the covenant into the, the city of Jerusalem. He can't contain himself, right? And he's surrounded by all these servants who are dancing, and he's dancing like a servant, basically. And in a way that, that would seem less than royal, if you will, right? Now keep in mind, his wife, whose name is Michael, it's a feminine name, not a masculine name, uh, she is the, the daughter of who? King Saul. And if you remember about King Saul, he didn't care about the Ark of the Covenant whatsoever. You could tell it follows in her suit as well. She doesn't care about the Ark. She's not excited about it at all. And so she thinks, Dave, you're crazy. You're, you're, you're acting like an idiot. Stop acting so cuckoo and, and, and have some self-respect, if you will. And, and David responds to her, I will celebrate all the more before the Lord. 
I will make myself even more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes again and again, but by the female servants that you've spoken about, by them I'll be held in honor because they have the same heart. They know the Lord. They love the Lord, and they can't contain their zeal and their desire for him. Of course, David was not trying to act in a crazy manner. He wasn't trying to be cuckoo, if you will, but that's just his wife's interpretation of his actions. Well, in the same way, verse 13 Paul's saying to the Corinthians, if we are beside ourselves, in other words, if we seem crazy or mad, if you will, it's for God. But if we're in our right mind, it's for you. In other words, our, our, our devotion to God might seem crazy at times, but the gospel that we preach is really quite sane. We're trying to make it as simple and clear as possible that you might understand how to be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll, I'll tell you, even for you graduates that have come up here this morning and all the rest of in, in this society in which we live, the more you try to seek Christ and to, to, to fulfill your calling in Christ's name, you're going to seem crazy. It's going to be different than how the rest of the world follows their calling. You're going to, you're going to stick out. But it reminds me of um, an instance uh, in the life of Dawson Trotman, who is the founder of Navigator's Ministry. Early on in his Christian walk, um, he had vowed not to go to bed at night until he had witnessed to at least one saved person each day. Anyone here made the same vow? I'm not going to go to bed at night until I have witnessed to at least one unsaved person each day. And as a result, at least on one occasion, it cost him some sleep because he had not made any attempts whatsoever to, to witness to someone. So one night, it's about 11.30 p.m., He's kneeling down to pray before he goes to bed, and he remembers, I haven't, I haven't talked to anyone about Christ today. And so he says, Lord, uh, I, will, I will talk to two people tomorrow, just let me go to sleep today, right? And so he gets into bed, but then he tosses and turns, and he realizes, you know, if I do this now, I'll do it again the next night, and the next night, and the next night. So he gets up out of bed, and he prays, Lord, give me somebody tonight. So he puts his clothes back on, gets in his car, and drives out randomly looking for someone to witness to, right? And finally, he, he finds this man who is, had been running after a commuter train and didn't quite make it, and so he's stranded. He pulls up alongside of him and offers to give him a ride. The man uh, accepted the ride and, and asked Dawson how far he was going, and so Dawson said, I'm going exactly as far as you're going. And, of course, that freaked the man out. He's like, uh, maybe I don't want to ride from you after all. And uh, as a result, uh, um, he quickly got to his point. And, he, and Dawson said, he said, look, man, I, I'm going to get right to business. I, I've been in bed already tonight, and I want to get back in bed. But I made it a rule in my life to tell the good news about Christ at least once a day. And I didn't do that today, so I had to get out of bed again, and now you're my chance. So can I share the gospel with you? And, and he just la the man just laughed, and he said, sure, you bet, or give it to me, you know, kind of thing. And uh, immediately uh, Dawson went into the gospel story with him, and, and the man admitted that he had been trying to find some answers to his life, and, and had tried to go to church a couple times and just didn't quite understand what was going on, and later that night he, he prayed and received Christ, right? And Dawson went to bed happy, <laughs> But even though that man realized that Dawson wasn't, in fact, crazy, you can imagine a lot of people would think he's crazy based upon getting out of bed and like randomly going around like a prowler looking for someone to witness to, you know, in that sense. 
But unlike Michael, who thought that her husband David was crazy for dancing before the ark, Dawson Trotman's wife did not think he was crazy when he did a lot of these seemingly crazy things, particularly when he would invite hundreds of men to come and sleep at their house so that he could disciple them. And they're all Navy men. So they're all men off ships who had not been around a woman in many, many days. And he's like, come and spend a night at my house, all hundreds of you, in that sense. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Navigator ministry, it started basically on one ship. He had led one person to Christ, and then that man would bring other of his friends to come and hear the gospel. So he kept inviting them to his house, and they would stay. And it got to the point where eventually on one ship, the USS West Virginia, uh, 135 men had professed the name of Christ before the ship was sunk at Pearl Harbor. Uh, by the end of World War II, thousands of men on ships and bases around the world were discipled as a result of the Navigator ministry. It was such a successful ministry that uh, it, it took just a little bit of craziness to start it, if you will. But the fear of the Lord can cause that oftentimes in Christians. It causes them to act just a little crazy. At least that's one motivation for why Paul does what he does. But then he gives a second motivation again. Look at verse 14. There he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Now here he's not referring to uh, our love for Christ, but rather Christ's love for us. He says that the knowledge of Christ's love for us compels us to do good works, compels us to go and share the gospel with others. And the same word that's used in the Greek language in the gospel to refer to how the crowd is pressing in on Jesus so much that he's forced to get into a boat and, and back off in the shore so he can preach to them from the boat because he's about to be squashed, if you will. It's the same word that's used here in the sense of Christ's love compels him to do something, forces him to move, if you will, in a way that he wouldn't have moved otherwise in order to do what God wants of him. And he elaborates on this divine motivation in verses 14 and 15. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, it's very important... I'm not going to get too much into this theologically, but it's important that we understand the context in order to understand Paul's mind here. If we don't read it in context, we're naturally going to uh, devolve into what's known as universalism. In other words, that everyone is going to be saved, that no one will, will face the judgment at all in terms of the wicked. Clearly, the context for this particular verse is Paul's motivation for living for Christ, which is Christ's love for him. Christ's love compels him to do the things that he does. So it's also important to understand how he uses the word all in this passage. In this particular case, grammatically, the word all is used as a pronoun. Have I left you all with English grammar so far? All is used as a pronoun. That's meant to represent the, a, a whole group of people, a number of people in a particular group. But what group is he referring to? All of what or all of whom? Is he referring to all men? Is he referring to all sinners? Is he referring to all apostles? Or is he referring to all Christians? Well, it should be obvious from the context here that all cannot refer to non-Christians. For not only does Paul say that Christ has died for all, but he says all have died. What does he mean by that? 
when he's referring to the union that believers have with Christ by faith, when Christ died, we died with him. Does that make sense? And because we died with him, when he resurrected, we also have been resurrected to a new life. We have a, a new person, if you will, that's alive within us. This is not true of a non-Christian. So if you say that all of this applied to the non-Christian, then the non-Christian would also be alive now. But he's not. It's not referring to that. His, 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 his point is that this has only worked for the Christian. And now, as a result, the Christian is compelled to tell others about Christ. He's compelled to live for Christ because he has a new principle of life within him. He's saying that because of Christ's great love for, for his followers, not only has he died for them, but he's also resurrected on their behalf so that they're now new creations in Christ. In another passage, Paul says something very similar. Galatians 2.20, you're probably familiar with it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer what? I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. It's because he loves me and gives himself for me that motivates me to go out and do the things that God wants of me. When someone understands that love, he begins to act a little crazy because he begins to act differently than he ever acted before. Uh, Count Zinzendorf is another guy you may not be very familiar with him. He was a wealthy, oh, wealthy. He was a wealthy nobleman living in Germany in the 18th century. He had come to faith in Christ, and, and, and he was in a, some sort of art studio. He had saw a painting on the cross, and at the bottom of the painting was this inscription, which reads this way. He says, I have done all for thee. What hast thou done for me? And immediately, having an understanding of, of Christ's love for him, he thought, I ought to be giving everything for Christ in response to what he's done for me. And, and, he, and he begins to do that in, in a, a thousand different ways. Many of you would probably know him best by one of his works. He was a hymn writer as well. And his most famous hymn is Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. You know that one? Some of you have that look like, maybe not. It's like, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. I forget the rest of the words. da 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 Go look it up. It's in the hymn book. It's great. The words are awesome. A man who truly loves God. But he's also known for a place called Hernhut, which was a place that was on his own property. He had you know, many, many hundreds of acres. But during the time in which he was there, many hundreds, thousands even, began to be persecuted in, in Germany because of their faith, in the area of Germany at least. And they, he invited them to come live on his property for free. And he would feed and clothe and provide for them and basically protected an entire generation of Christians because of God's love for him. But even more so, he's known as the father of the modern mission movement because it was his uh, movement in the Hernhut mission, if you will, that they began to pray day and night for a hundred years that God would move around the world missionally. And he began to send people off on mission trips to different places. One of the first uh, uh, two men that went out, they purposely became slaves in order to witness to slaves on one of the colonies that only slaves could live on. And so they enslaved themselves, if you will, all of this out of a sense of Christ's love for them personally. 
they began to act a little crazy because now they understood something of the love of Christ. It's interesting, in, in, in most modern-day English translations, there's a, a very important word that's often lacking in verse 17. And it's the word behold. It's a word that many of the translations just omit altogether. But it's, it's a very fascinating word. It's a word that's meant to get your attention. It's like, shazam! Behold! Right? You're, most of, you're meant to pay attention to this particular word because what used to be, it's something entirely different now. In fact, it's, it's very similar to uh, in creation, you know, after, after God creates the heavens and the earth, and, and all of a sudden you begin to see, you know, each of the creatures that are formed and, and, and are multiplying and filling the earth, then all of a sudden it slows down, and you're meant to see the pinnacle of creation as this man. You're meant to behold him in his glory, something different than everything else in creation. In in the same way, Paul is wanting to slow down for the new creation, say, look at this new man. He's different than any other man you've ever seen. He may seem crazy to you because he doesn't act like the regular man does. He lives by a new principle, by a new love, by a new fear. And as a result, he acts a little different. It's interesting, in in the first creation, if you remember, God created the, the world first and then inhabited it with different creatures, right? When the new creation is the other way around, the first thing that is recreated is man, the individual himself, and then the world is then recreated later. uh, But the the man himself is the first principle of the resurrection. There's something new, something exciting, something wonderful that's going on. You can't see the world recreated yet, but you can see it already in Christians, in the man and the woman who comes to faith in Christ. Of course, the untrained ear and eye will think that that person's just crazy. You're different. But for those who know the love of Christ, it makes all the sense of the world to them. It's a different way of life. It's a different person that you live for. Instead of the cuckoo people that live all around us, you're not saying cuckoo things anymore. You're just saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It makes all the sense in the world. As we'll sing in a minute from our final hymn, All for Jesus, the writer says this, Worldlings prize their gems of beauty. They cling to gilded toys of dust. They boast of their wealth and their fame and their pleasure, but only Jesus will I trust. And since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside, so enchained by my spirit's vision, looking only at the crucified. I, I imagine... Anyone who actually sees a person who lives this way, they're going to think they're a little cuckoo. But I tell you, in my understanding, it seems to be very quite normal and sane. And I hope it does to you as well. That when you understand something of the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, it changes your life. causes you to live in a way that you never lived before. A new creation. Totally different principles than what you had before. Think about that. Let's pray together. Father, we, we ask that you continue to help us to understand what Paul is, is seeking to teach us in this particular passage. We know that he has been criticized by a number of people for the things that he does and for how he lives his life and for how zealous he is for the gospel of Christ. We know that oftentimes our lives are not the same as his and, and sometimes don't look remotely similar to his, but we know that 
if that same principle of life is within us, we too begin to think differently and begin to, to live by that same fear, by that same love. And that it would cause us to live in a different way, to know you, to love you, to do all things for you. That No longer living for ourselves, no longer living for what this world lives for, but to live for Jesus. We pray that you move in us to understand this, move in us to apply this, and that we too might, uh, might be deemed a little crazy by the world, we pray.